The protest chants we're hearing across the United States right now tell a visceral story of desperation and solidarity. And it's an especially shocking jolt to the system when you compare it to the silence and isolation that defined this country just a few weeks ago under pandemic quarantines. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Tens of thousands of protesters across the United States have defied curfews and risked detention in the past two weeks in their fight against police brutality. These protests have grown so big and spread so far. We're not just seeing them in major U.S. cities, but also in suburbs, in rural towns, in cities outside the U.S. World leaders from the U.K., Germany, China, and Iran, just to name a few, have spoken out against police violence or expressed support for the protesters. This feels momentous, and it's left a lot of people wondering, after so many waves of protests against police brutality in the U.S., why does this one seem different? To break that down, we're talking with two people. A poet who's experienced and written about police brutality throughout his life, and a woman who unexpectedly faced it on her doorstep this week. We're also going to hear the voices of protesters throughout this episode in the form of voice notes they sent us by email or over WhatsApp. People from California to Texas to Maryland all shared their experiences with us. And we're going to start with Johnson and Nick, who have been protesting in Minnesota. George Floyd could have been me. Um, Amand Aubrey could have been me. Breonna Taylor could have been me. Uh, there are so many thousands of people who have been killed by a system designed to kill black and brown people could have been me. If you can't imagine a city without police, <laughs> just look to Minneapolis right now because this is what's actually happening. The police aren't the ones that are protecting us from the white terrorism that is all over our city. We are actually doing that ourselves. This story began on May 25th in the Midwestern city of Minneapolis in Minnesota. Actually, you could argue that this story started centuries ago, but we'll get to that. My face is gone. May 25th is the day George Floyd, an unarmed Black man, was killed by a police officer in broad daylight as other officers and a group of people nearby watched. You can hear Floyd pleading, saying he can't breathe with the officer's knee on his neck. You can hear people in the crowd shouting at the officer to stop suffocating him. But Derek Chauvin kept kneeling on Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds until he stopped breathing entirely. The protests in Minneapolis kicked off the next day. We saw police brutality there too, 
as they fired tear gas and rubber bullets at people. Some protesters threw rocks, lit fires, and tried to block roads. The clashes made national news, and more protests erupted across the country. There has been some destruction. Buildings have been vandalized or broken into. Cars burned to ashes. But most of the thousands of protesters have been peaceful. They accuse the police of escalating the violence. This is Yasmin, who went to a protest in Dallas, Texas, on May 31st. I look to my side and I see this man get shot in the eye with a rubber bullet. Um, there was there was so much blood. We tried to help him as much as we could. And then immediately they found us all congregated around him. And then they shot more tear gas at us and they shot more rubber bullets at us. So we started running again. And I have absolutely no idea what happened to that guy that was in the floor. He was a young, a young Black man that was shot in the eye by a rubber bullet for peacefully protesting in downtown Dallas. Here's Sophia, who protested in Baltimore, Maryland, on June 1st. People, especially those hesitant about this movement, need to see that thousands of Black, Brown, Asian, and white people around the nation are coming together conflict-free. You know, whether it's taking a moment of silence together or engaging peacefully with police officers in their communities. Here in Washington, D.C., I went out to report myself that first weekend after Floyd's death. And the minute I stepped into that space where protesters were gathered outside of the White House, I felt this energy. The atmosphere was electric. There was anger, but also a determination amongst the people I talked to that this was their strength and their way to make change happen. It was powerful. I'm not the only one who felt that. The poet and essayist Hanif Abdurraqib, miles away from me in his hometown of Columbus, Ohio, said the same thing. I'm energized. You know, I've been out in the streets with folks and I've been seeing young folks getting active and I've been seeing folks putting themselves in the line to take care of people and, and that, that really lifts my spirits. Leading up to this, it felt to me like collectively there was a lot of the country grappling with a loss of control I think what we're seeing here is that there are people in this country, there are marginalized people, there are Black people, there are people who are poor, who for a long time before having to be quarantined haven't felt like they're in control. And so in some ways, what has culminated in the past few days, at least here, has felt to me like people who had come to terms with that over the past few months taking to the streets. Hanif is a cultural critic who wrote a book called They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. He writes about pop culture through the lens of social issues, like mental health awareness, police brutality, even just the implicit bias that Black people face when dealing with authorities in the U.S. And I knew that, as a Black man, Hanif had likely dealt with this firsthand his entire life. So I asked him about that. When we look at why people are out in the streets and why they're so angry and why, you know, each time feels like the straw that broke the camel's back, it can be helpful to then 
explain to people who have never had an unpleasant run-in with the police, to use a, a very light euphemism, what that could be like? Oh, I mean, of course. I mean, I... Yeah, I mean, I grew up in a neighborhood, a largely Black neighborhood, a a neglected area that was bordered by an affluent suburb. And so anytime I crossed into that suburb, I was messed with by police. You know what I mean? Anytime I went home, I was messed with by police. When I was 17, I thought they were a fixture. I thought they were just as ever-present as the air itself. You know what I mean? I I tend to think of it as just like a rite of passage or a way to live in the world. For non-Black people living in the United States, it might be hard to imagine and impossible to fully understand what that constant injustice feels like. And given that the media is composed of mainly white Americans, Hanif says they don't get it. Honestly, I still think it's hard for, from what I've seen, it is hard for the media to thoughtfully address what an uprising is attempting and the function of an uprising. Last night, Brooklyn burned with rage as protesters set fires and marched through the streets. In one incident, demonstrators surrounded a pair of NYPD vehicles that suddenly lurched into the crowd. Americans woke up to scenes of destruction once again today. Anger has been unleashed coast to coast after the death of 46-year-old George Floyd and the overall mistreatment of black Americans at the hands of police. In the light of day, it's almost hard to describe how much destruction, how much looting there has been here in Santa Monica. It sprawls for miles across the city. Far too often I've seen the media hone in on looting and on very particular types of violence that don't just come out of thin air, right? And violence that is often tied to a deeper historical violence. There's always a a historical violence behind the fire set to a car. Right, but so much is been focused on property and not on the people. And I think that as long as that continues, the people will never have what they need to get free. The police are really escalating these protests to a, a really intense degree. And so these escalation tactics are happening at a rate that has like a ripple effect, right? I I don't think you can escalate a protest towards violence and not expect a reaction that matches that escalation. The violence that is enacted during these protests is a mirror held up to a country that was founded off of and profits off of violence at the expense of marginalized folks and has for years. Um, It's a much longer and difficult conversation and much more historically rich conversation than the people who kind of want to use that are willing to engage in. Tony Sanders talked about that history in the voice note she sent us. She's been attending protests in Washington, D.C. I'm not at these protests just for George Floyd. I'm still marching for Emmett Till. I'm still marching for the Tulsa race riots. I'm still marching for Rosewood. I'm still marching for the 1985 residential bombing the U.S. did on American soil in Philadelphia to the organization of MOVE while women and children were present. Our police force originated as slave catchers. That is the foundation of the organization that is supposedly supposed to protect us. And as time has moved on, 
The only thing that's changing is the uniform. You go from your regular slave catching clothes to your KKK sheets to finally your police uniforms, your military uniforms. You can't reform a system like that. The only thing that you can do is rip something like that up by the root because it's rotten to the core. Don't shoot! Don't shoot! Don't shoot! Don't shoot! Don't shoot! One of the things I think people are trying to understand is what has made this time different from the other times people have taken to the streets to force attention on police brutality, because there does seem to be a difference. I mean, we are seeing protests break out all across the country and internationally. Hanif, something you've spoken so clearly and so well about is that the pandemic, the coronavirus, laid bare just how unequal our society here in the U.S. is and just how much power the disadvantaged don't have. Yeah, I mean, I think there are many people for whom staying inside was no longer an option when uprising is the other option. You know, I know people who otherwise would do the off-street work, do the donating and do the signal boosting, but would not go in the streets. But I think one thing this pandemic has done is it's really widened the ideas of class solidarity or solidarity along other lines, right? And so we're seeing, at least here, like I'm seeing folks who have never been to protests before going out into protests. I'm seeing significantly more young folks, right? I'm seeing protests stretching into geographical locations that they otherwise would not be stretching into. And I think all of it is in part due to this pandemic that pulled the curtain back on the magic trick that is America. We're learning that the people who upheld the magic trick are the workers or the the marginalized or the most disenfranchised in the country. And so those are the folks who want their voices heard. Hanif saying that the pandemic has exposed the fact that non-white people and people of fewer means run this country. Statistics show that most essential workers in the United States are Black and brown. They're the majority of employees at grocery stores, in transportation, sanitation, and healthcare. And now, seeing another Black man die at the hands of the police, they're saying, you need us. You better listen to our concerns. And to be fair, I mean, a few weeks ago, we had people protesting because they wanted to go to a gym. I mean, literally, there was those people in Florida who were like doing push-ups on the sidewalk to protest not being able to go to a gym, right? And I think seeing the absurdity of that has pushed people into the streets even more. Here's Melissa in Washington, D.C. She's been protesting nearly every day, and she wrote down her thoughts before she shared them with us because they made her pretty emotional. What I've seen every day since I started protesting on Saturday is police instigating inhumane violence, violence that they enact because they know they are protected by the state. The people protesting are exercising their First Amendment right to assembly, and yet any form of assembly is met with intimidation tactics like light flares, tear gas, rubber bullets, which are extremely dangerous, even deadly at close proximity. We would call it ironic if it weren't so tragic. 
Police are shooting and killing Black Americans as they attend protests against police brutality. A recent study showed that Black Americans are two and a half times more likely than white Americans to be killed by the police. Changing that culture of policing and impunity would require a significant commitment from individual police officers all the way up to the president. But Donald Trump isn't pushing for police reform. He's pushing for the opposite. We are ending the riots and lawlessness that has spread throughout our country. We will end it now. Today, I have strongly recommended to every governor to deploy the National Guard in sufficient numbers that we dominate the streets. If a city or state refuses to take the actions that are necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve the problem for them. Trump's words that day, June 1st, coincided with an escalation in police tactics on the ground. In Washington, D.C., helicopters were flying low to whip up debris, intimidate protesters, and make it hard for them to run away. It's a tactic used by the U.S. military in war. And the National Guard says it's investigating how and why this happened this week in the U.S. Capitol. The same day, there was an incident on a residential street, about a 30-minute walk from the White House. Police closed off the block, prevented protesters from leaving, and then fired tear gas at them. Some people living on the street opened their homes to the protesters to provide them safe haven. We heard from one of them, Mediha Nawaz. She grew up in the D.C. area, but lived abroad for the past four years and only returned, coincidentally, on the day George Floyd was killed. I was staying on Swan Street uh, in northwest D.C., which is a very quiet, tree-lined, beautiful street um, between 14th and 15th. Um, and everything was quiet. Mediha is a grad student. And on Monday, June 1st, she was working on her thesis watching the Great British Bake Off, normal Monday night activities. And then I started to look outside my window and I started to see some protesters walking with signs in one direction. And then I started seeing the same protesters and a few others start walking the other way, but they were kind of, seemed like they were in a hurry or scurrying a bit. And I was like, okay, this is weird. And then I just started seeing people go back and forth and it was, I was a bit confused. I started, I stood by the window and I was trying to figure out what's going on. Eventually, Mediha stepped out into the small fence yard in front of her apartment to find out what was happening. One man rushed up to her, told her police were closing in, and asked if he could stand inside with her. Next thing she knew, 13 others had also joined them in the yard. All of a sudden, I started hearing the police marching and hearing them say, like, move back. And they were all in this full 
gear with like these plastic shields. And as soon as we, we heard them and then we heard a blast, it was like, okay, no, it's time to get inside. Like everybody get in. So we all went inside, turned off the lights, stood away from the windows, um, sitting on the floor in the dark. You're hearing all of these sounds. You're hearing the helicopters. Um, you're hearing the police. And then when they started to arrest people, you could hear people screaming. So there was a moment where all of us, I think, were quite emotional because they were arresting people right in front of the house. We could hear it. And I remember one guy just screaming, saying, you know, you're already arresting me. Why are you hurting me? And this other guy pleading for his life, just being like, please let me go. And I think those moments, the screaming and the sounds of them being arrested was probably um, probably one of like something that I will probably never forget. And it was, it was insane. It was absolutely surreal. When I look back on it now, it is hard for me to fathom the fact that I was in a place that I call home. I was in America, a place that I have usually felt fairly safe. Um, and to be in a situation where you are dead scared, sitting with 15 strangers, in the dark on the floor was a little, um, yeah, it was just one of these very surreal moments of what is going on. Madiha housed the protesters all night. They slept on her bed and couch. She served them breakfast at 5 a.m. and found other residents in the neighborhood to help drive them back to their cars. And then around 6.15, we left just because I wanted to see people on the street before we got out. And I think last I remember, there were still cops that I could see on the street till at least 5.15, 5.30. So, yeah, it was this very intense experience that I did not think I would have uh, a week into moving back to America. I think even people in America are so um, not clued in. I mean, my parents are 35 miles away from D.C. where it happened, and my mom called me yesterday and said, hey, um, we heard that there were some protests. Did you hear them? Were you nearby? I obviously have not told them what happened because I don't want them to worry yet till they see me. Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I heard, I heard a little bit, but not much. But in their minds, they are just so far removed sitting in a safe suburban um, place that they also did not, cannot really fathom what happened. But yeah, it is real. The militarization is real, the police brutality is real, and we are at a really pivotal time right now. We keep hearing that, that this is a pivotal time. I think a lot of people are saying that with hope, that this might be the moment things change. So much of the frustration on the streets is about the fact that this keeps happening. Police keep killing Black men and women. More often than not, they don't face legal consequences. All four officers who were there when George Floyd was killed have now been charged. For some, that's a step in the right direction. But it doesn't mean other Black men and women are necessarily safer. Hanif's final thought when we talked touched on this. He says, the road to justice is a long one. Part of this, too, I have to be honest, is understanding that my work specifically is not about changing the world tomorrow. It's about understanding that, you know, 
there may be substantial change in the world, but we might not be alive for it. The world you're fighting for, you might not be alive to see. But you're kind of loosening, uh, the way I like to think about it is, you're loosening the bricks in the wall so that generations after you can just approach the wall and knock it over gently. With any luck, everyone will not be running up against the wall with the same ferocity that we're doing right now. Just like there are people before me who ran up against the wall at a much higher velocity and softened it a little bit for, for the folks out the streets right now. My hope is that we kind of keep softening the bricks in the wall for generations to come. Hanif Abdurraqib, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. And thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And that's The Take. We want to thank everyone who sent us their stories. These are difficult conversations, and we value the energy and thought you put into your voice messages. We'd love to hear from more of you. Message us on Instagram or Twitter at AJTheTake. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilve with Dina Kisbe, Alexander Locke, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Natalia Aldana manages the social media accounts I just mentioned. Give her a shout. Alex Roldan worked magic on the sound design of this episode. Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.